Well, this morning we're going to be in our series in the book of Romans again. Uh, We've come to a little bit of a transition here in the book. Uh, We've been walking through this justification section, uh, and if you're thinking we're transitioning out of it, not so fast. Uh, We've come to the halfway point of the first section of justification. Um, What we're going to be looking at here is verses 3 or 9 through 20 of chapter 3. So go ahead and open your Bibles there. Romans chapter 3, 9 through 20. Now I just want to catch you up on what Paul has been doing in this first section of justification in his letter. Uh, Really what he's been aiming to do is to establish the unrighteousness of both Gentiles and Jews, both the irreligious and the religious. Uh, And if you flip back a couple pages in your Bible to the beginning of, or the midpoint of chapter 1, we see that Paul begins by demonstrating Gentile unrighteousness in chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. And then he really turns his sights to the Jews, beginning in chapter 2, and then going all the way through 3, verse 8. And now as we come to 9 through 20, this is really Paul's climax of this section on the unrighteousness of humanity. And so what Paul really aims to do here in these verses that we will look at is to close the case on the unrighteousness of humanity by showing the universal reign of sin and its devastating implications on humanity. Uh, And I know that these passages that we've been walking through have been a bit challenging. Uh, They've been a little bit depressing in some instances because they speak very clearly of human sin. Uh, But they are necessary and we'll see why that is as we continue on here. So keep this in mind that Paul is aiming to close the case on the unrighteousness of humanity by showing two things. The universal reign of sin and its devastating implications. So let's read over the text then, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Beginning in verse 9, Romans 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law speaks, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Father, as we encounter here the climax of Paul's demonstration of human unrighteousness, would you once again give us ears to hear 
eyes to see, hearts to believe. Would you change and transform us through what we see here in your word, through the power of your spirit. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So first let's consider here what Paul says about the universal reign of sin. And we ultimately see this in 9 through 18. Let's look first at verse 9. He says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Now up to this point in his letter, Paul has demonstrated the unrighteousness of unbelieving Gentiles and Jews separately. We showed how he addressed the Gentiles in chapter 1 and then in 2 and most of 3, the Jews. He's, he's divided his audience and addressed one at each given point in the letter. But now what Paul seeks to do is to bring his audience together, to clump them together, to create a climax in his argument about the unrighteousness of all people. This is what he says. He says, we have already charged that all, who is this all? Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Now, when Scripture uses the language of Jews and Greeks or Jews and Gentiles, it's defining the totality of humanity. In the terms of the Bible and in terms of the biblical authors, there was two groups of people in the world. There were God's chosen people, the Jews, and there were everyone else, often referenced by Jews or often referenced by Greeks or Gentiles. We see Paul utilize the word Greeks here. So what he's saying is that this all encompasses the totality of humanity. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Now not only does Paul explicitly say that he is speaking about all people here, but he makes this even more clear by putting together a string of Old Testament quotes that use this same universal language. Notice the language that these quotes use, uh, and he's quoting here Psalm 14 and 53 in verses 10, 11, and 12. Listen to the language. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. In case you are wondering if there is an exception to this, comma, not even one. Now if this were not enough to make his point, when Paul comes out of his string of Old Testament quotations, he then makes his application from those texts by showing that he aims to stop every mouth and to hold the whole world accountable before God. Paul is universalizing his audience to say that all people, regardless of if you're a Jew or not a Jew, are under sin. Now the reason why Paul utilizes this universal language is not just for effect, although it is effective in creating the climax of his argument, but it's also essential for Paul's argument to show that no one is an exception to the universal reign of sin and unrighteousness because it shows the necessity of the gospel. If anyone is an exception to sin and unrighteousness, then we don't need Jesus. 
The gospel is not necessary. So Paul here has established his audience for his final verdict as all without exception. And now he informs his audience of the spiritual state they are in. We see this in verse 9 as well. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, there's the audience, here's their spiritual state, are under sin. Now up to this point in Paul's letter, he has spoken about sin as it relates to what humans do that offend God. He has spoken about the realities of human unrighteousness and the many ways in which they sin or commit acts of unrighteousness against God and against His creation. But what Paul seeks to do at this point is expand our understanding of sin beyond simply wrong actions. He's telling us that there's something deeper here than the fact that we just commit acts of unrighteousness or sin. Paul not only says that we commit acts of sin, but he also says here that apart from God's grace, we are under the power and reign of sin. Paul uses the noun here for sin, not the verb. Commentator Douglas Moo speaks about the reign of sin in humanity in this way. He says the problem with people is not just that they commit sins. It's that they are enslaved to sin. It's not as though the unbeliever occasionally stumbles into acts of sin while otherwise living a God-glorifying life. No, the unbeliever is completely ruled by his sinful desires. Enslaved to them. Now this concept of being enslaved to sin is all throughout Scripture, both Old and New Testament. And Paul will develop it more fully when we get to chapter 6 of the book of Romans. Speaking about how we can be slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. So let's summarize a little bit what we've seen here. Paul has defined his audience as all without exception. And he has then informed them of their spiritual state. That they are under sin, enslaved to their sinful desires. Now Paul goes on to put together this string of Old Testament quotes that we looked at just briefly a moment ago in order to paint a picture of the nature of those who are under sin's reign. And what we see here is a block quotation from the Psalms and then one from Isaiah. So let's read over this again. This is the picture that we see of human sinfulness and the reign of sin over the unbeliever. Let's back up to verse 9 so we can catch the flow. For we have already charged that all audience, both Jews and Greeks, are spiritual state under sin. As it is written, here's what their sinful nature looks like. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. 
Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The nature of the unbeliever is anti-God. They lack the righteousness that Paul has been speaking about. They do not understand the ways of God. They do not have eyes to see and accept what is spiritual. They have no desire to seek for God, but instead they have turned away from Him. Because they have turned away from that which is supremely valuable, they themselves have become worthless. They do nothing that is good in the eyes of God. Their anti-God disposition leads to words and actions of unrighteousness. From their mouth comes only death, deception, curses, and bitterness. They are quick to harm others and ruin and misery accompany their lives. And because of the life they live, they have no rest within their souls. And though they maintain an anti-God disposition and commit countless acts of unrighteousness against God and His creation, worst of all, they still do not fear the judgment of God. But rather, they put Him out of their minds completely. That is a brutal picture of fallen humanity. Why is it so difficult for us to accept what Scripture says in relation to the depths of human sin? I think among many, there are a couple here that I want to address. Why is it so hard to accept this? I think that it's hard to accept this first because our sinful nature is inherently prideful. It doesn't like to be told it's a slave. It likes to believe that it is free. When Jesus told the Jews in John chapter 8 that they needed to be set free, the very thing we sang about this morning, they were offended. Their pride rose up from within them. And they snapped back at Jesus and said that we are children of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anything. Jesus says that if you sin, you are a slave to sin. You see, this is often what happens with us as we see Scripture speaking about these difficult realities for us to accept. As our own pride and sinful nature wells up within us. And is offended by the notion that we could possibly be a slave. It is anti our sinful nature to accept its enslavement. And that's often why it's hard to accept. But not only this. This doctrine is also hard to accept because it's often hard to square with our experience. I've heard a lot of people say, I know many people who are unbelievers but who are good people. No one is righteous. 
No one does good. How can I square what I see with my eyes with what the Bible says? I've heard many people say, I see a lot of unbelievers seeking after God. No one seeks for God. Brothers and sisters, the problem here is that we cannot see inside these people's hearts. We do not see them as God sees them. And how does God see them? What it says right here in scripture. The psalmist is giving us a picture of the way that God sees fallen humanity. We don't have the capacity to see the world around us the way that God does. And more so than this. We must be very careful not to undo what scripture says. Because we cannot see how it aligns with our experience. It will lead you down very devastating roads to begin to interpret this book through the lens of your experience. Our experience can deceive us. The word of God is true. We must believe what it says even when it conflicts with what we see in our experience. We must not allow our experience to dictate what the Word of God says. So not only is this doctrine often hard to accept, but I believe that this doctrine is also of great advantage to us as Christians. I believe that it has a missional advantage and it has a maturing advantage. So let's consider first the missional advantage to believing what the Bible says about the severity of the depravity of mankind. Christianity's doctrine of human sinfulness is the great equalizer. It does not recognize differences in social status, skin color, gender, age, or anything else that humanity uses to make ourselves superior to another human being. It simply says that all, without distinction and without exception, are under sin. It doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are. It doesn't matter what your social status is. It's the great equalizer. So how does this help us when we're seeking to share the gospel with unbelievers? This is how it helps us. It means that no matter who you are sitting across the table from seeking to share the gospel with, you have common ground with that person. You can have a genuine and honest conversation with them on the basis of what the Bible says about their sinfulness and your sinfulness. It creates a natural connection from us to the unbeliever. Such that we can say to them, I am just like you. The only thing that is different about me is the grace of God in my life. I am just like you. And you can be just like me. 
That's what this doctrine of human sinfulness does in our evangelism. It creates common ground between us and those who we are evangelizing. So it has a missional advantage, but it also, secondly, has a maturing advantage for us as disciples of Jesus. So how does this work? This is how I believe we mature as Christians. The more we lay hold of the depths of our sinfulness, the more we realize that we need Jesus. The more we realize we need Jesus, the more that we seek Him. And the more that we seek Him, the more the Spirit changes us into His image. So brothers and sisters, there is great advantage to us to believing what the Bible says about the depths of our sinfulness because it drives us more towards Jesus. Towards the transforming work the Spirit of God is going to do in our lives when we lay hold of His glory. But when we try to lighten what Paul is saying about the human condition here, we hurt ourselves. Because we are led to rest more in self than in Christ. That's the reality here. There is a danger in not recognizing and believing what Scripture says. It actually stunts our growth in Christ rather than advances it. So let's return here to what Paul is getting at. In efforts to close his case on the unrighteousness of humanity, Paul lays before us the universal reign of sin in mankind. And now he moves on to close this section on the unrighteousness of mankind by showing the devastating implications from all he has said. And the implications that he points out are two. First, that humanity is accountable and that they are helpless. We see this in verses 19 and 20. As he comes out of his quotation of the Old Testament, this is what Paul says. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now in this verse 19, Paul gets a little bit confusing. I'm going to try and simplify what he does here. So although Paul is aiming here to show the accountability of all humanity, we've seen the universal language, for a moment... Paul actually emphasizes his Jewish audience. And we see this in the language that Paul uses in the beginning of verse 19. He says, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Those who are under the law would be Jews. Those to whom the written law had been given. Now the question we must ask is if, If Paul is trying to make a universal case for the accountability of humankind, why does he emphasize the Jews here? What's his point in doing this? 
I believe that Paul does this because he felt a particular burden to convince the Jews of their accountability before God and their unrighteousness before him. Now let's not forget the argument that we've seen in previous sermons that the Jews believed that they were exempt from the judgment of God. So Paul is going to greater lengths to point out their unrighteousness and their accountability before him. Along this whole trek, Who's the only one that has been objecting to Paul's arguments? The Jews. The religious people, right? When Paul went through that first section where he addressed his Gentile audience, you didn't hear anything from them. You heard objections from his Jewish audience. So Paul is simply making clear here, pointing out to his Jewish audience that you specifically are accountable to God. This is where it gets a little tricky. Paul then makes a universal application from his emphasis of his Jewish audience. Verse 19, let's read it again. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, his Jewish audience. Here's the universal application. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So here's the reasoning that Paul is using. Paul is saying that if God's chosen people, the Jews, are accountable to him, then it stands to reason that the pagan nations are accountable to God as well. If God's chosen people out of all the peoples of the world, if God's chosen people cannot make a valid objection to this judgment, how can anyone else? They can't. Commentator Colin Cruz expresses Paul's reasoning in this way. He says, Once Jewish mouths are silenced and the Jewish people are seen to be no better than the Gentiles, then the whole world stands accountable before God. That's what Paul is doing here. Paul has silenced the Jewish mouth by showing them that their own law condemns them. And he has silenced Gentile mouths by showing that the only people on earth who can offer a possible objection to God's judgment are the Jews. And their objections are in vain. So Paul here has effectively silenced the whole world. The effect of what Paul is saying is that everyone must stand silent before the Lord of glory. One other thing we must say in relation to this language of being accountable to God. It's not as though Paul is just saying that all of the world is accountable to God and that when they stand before them, they have some chance of of creating a good enough argument to justify themselves before him. No, based on the picture of human sinfulness and the reign of sin that Paul has just outlined for us, He's not just saying that all humanity will be held accountable to God. He's saying that all humanity is guilty before God. Accountable and guilty. Every mouth may be stopped. There's nothing we can say. This is the first devastating implication from the universal reign of sin. All people are accountable before God. 
And the second is this. All people are helpless to justify themselves. Verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. This is Paul's final devastating implication from the reign of sin. No human being can do anything to make their relationship with God right again. You can't do it. How can someone who is enslaved to a sinful nature that is unrighteous, lacking spiritual understanding, not desiring God, and committed to doing what is wrong, fix their relationship with God? They can't. They don't even want to. Because of the depth of their sin, they are completely helpless to save themselves. This is the climax of Paul's argument on the unrighteousness of humanity. All are under the universal reign of sin. All are accountable and guilty before God. And none can justify themselves before Him. Brothers and sisters, these passages are often ones that if we had the choice, we would probably pass over. Because they don't present us with a flattering human reality. Rather, they present us with a brutally honest one. Now, although what Paul has shown us is often hard to swallow, we must not shy away from deepening our understanding and acceptance of our own sinful condition because there is much value in it. We cannot shy away from this because it is essential to the gospel. You see, over the last two and a half chapters, what we have seen Paul do is descend down into the pit of human sin so deep that we might feel complete darkness. He's just been digging and digging and digging and digging so that we might look in the mirror at ourselves and see nothing but sin. See this picture that we saw here in the Psalms. Now why has Paul done this? Why has Paul spent two and a half chapters demonstrating the sinfulness and unrighteousness of humanity. Well, he has done this so that when he shines the light of the gospel on us, that we might see the glory of Christ more clearly and that we might cherish him more fully. Suppose for a minute that we were to, that I had a flashlight in my hand and that I was shining it at you right now. You would be able to see some of the light. You would be able to appreciate some of it, would you not? But a lot of it would be drowned out by all the other lights that we have on in here. You wouldn't be able to see with such clarity the beauty and the helpfulness of the light. Now suppose we turned off all the lights, blocked off all the doors so that it was pitch black in here. Couldn't see your hand in front of your face. And I did the same thing. 
how much more clearly could you see and appreciate and cherish the light if it was pitch black in here? Much more, right? This is why understanding and accepting the depths of our sinfulness is so important. Because it shows us a clearer picture of how great and glorious Jesus is. You see, this is the situation that we find ourselves in. We can either acknowledge that we are in a pitch black room and see the glory of Jesus, that that's our condition, or we can fool ourselves into thinking that we are better than we really are, which will make the gospel less glorious to us. You see, sanctification really is about every single day convincing yourself that you are not as good as you think you are. And then running to Jesus who can help you. It is only when we taste the bitterness of our sin that the gospel becomes sweet to us. And that's what Paul wants us to do. He wants us to feel it. He wants us to experience it. He wants us to be always aware of it. So that when we return to the second half of chapter 3. And Paul says that the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ has been shown to us. That it might be that much more beautiful and glorious to us. As we've already considered the depth of our own sin. So brothers and sisters let us leave here accepting and believing what the scripture says about our sinful condition that we might cherish Jesus all the more. Let's pray. Father, you are so great and merciful to us to show us this picture of our wickedness, our sin, our depravity, the ugliness that is within us. And Lord, Jesus stands in such contrast to our sin and shines as a beautiful light that has come to rescue us. May we not ignore or lighten our condition. May we embrace it that we may seek Jesus more faithfully and more frequently. And as we do, Lord, we pray that your spirit would change and transform us into his image. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.